Welcome to Rooted Within with Lily and Dan, a podcast that shines a spotlight on positive change makers, sharing their stories of legacy, inspiration, and impact. Each episode, Lily and Dan will speak to individuals who have made their dreams a reality, exploring their journeys, mindset shifts, and what motivated them. Join us as we explore the lives of those who are making a difference and let their stories inspire you to achieve your own goals. I have very good work-life balance. I make sure I can uh, compartmentalize my responsibilities. I focus on where I can add value most. And I always look at return on time invested as my decision-making sort of thermometer, as it were. My heart is larger than average because it had to push oxygen and blood through smaller capillaries in my lungs, which is one of the effects of asthma. So I was always keen to sort of create. And then I started this leadership journey by starting to manage other people and try and sort of motivate other people. And I enjoyed that. And I wanted to learn more about it. And I, I studied business studies just to sort of understand a little bit more how to be effective as a business person. Nurture and nature cannot be in conflict. I have very, very good leaders who are introverts. They are extremely good leaders. The minute they try and be extroverts, it doesn't work. It comes across as fake. So you need to be true to yourself. Rooted Within with Lily and Dan. Welcome, welcome to Rooted Within. And today I have to pronounce our guest name myself because Dan is not here. Welcome to the studio today, Nathan Ferrugia. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. All oh, right, that would take two was all right. Nathan, you know, without, without Dan, I usually get him to do it. So damn, he's not here to do it. Welcome. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I didn't realize this, but you don't actually live here. So we're very lucky to have you in the studio. Well, we'll see whether you're lucky or not. But uh, no, I don't live here. I, I commute every every month uh, to, to spend time here a week or two at a time. We're growing the business, so it doesn't need me to be here. I've still got other interests uh, in Malta. Well, speaking of interests, we've got, and I'm going to do the list. I've had to write it down. President of Vistage. Vistage, yes. Vistage in Malta and the UAE. Serial entrepreneur, storyteller and author, business coach, record-breaking adventurer, TEDx speaker, owner of Vistage, philanthropist, and if I'm not mistaken, you used to be a physiotherapist? Yes. And the list goes on. <laughs> Do you get any sleep? Of course. No, I have very good work-life balance. Really? Yes. D Do tell me more about that. How? I make sure I can uh, compartmentalize my responsibilities. Mm -hmm. I focus on where I can add value most. And I always look at return on time invested as my decision-making sort of uh, thermometer, as it were. So how many hours of sleep do you actually get? Seven or eight. Really? Yes. I, yeah, I, I mean, I need my sleep, otherwise I don't function. But seven hours of sleep and you've done all of that? But I think, you know, I, I've been blessed with, you know, opportunities that, that came that I said yes to, that uh, allowed me to grow and experiment and, and explore. And one thing always led to another somehow. Mm. I have this itch every five years, I need to change industry. And you scratch uh, it. Which is not just career. And yeah, I have started in healthcare, moved to hospitality, moved into education, ran tech companies, ran health spas. For me, leadership is, is ubiquitous. It doesn't fit mm. a, a box. Um, no, it's quite a transferable skill. Yes. So far. <laughs> so far. Before we go into all the achievements that you've been going through at the moment, tell me about Nathan the kid, Nathan the teenager, Nathan starting off his career and Nathan the man he is today. So I was born in Malta mm -hmm. to a Maltese father and a British 
mum and I have three younger brothers. At four years old, I was diagnosed with severe asthma and I, my parents were told that I couldn't do sports or do things that would trigger an asthmatic attack, climb mm -hmm. trees, go camping, spend time outdoors. Oh, wow. And they decided to ignore the medical profession and do the opposite. And they signed me up to every single sport the school had. And so sports became my therapy. Why, why was it that they did that? Because it takes, it takes a lot for a parent to go, you know what, no, we're, we're going to do, do it our way. I think they, they used common sense. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, 45 years ago. So the science at the time was limited. Mm -hmm. And they felt that actually if I, if I did sports and strengthened my lungs, I would better cope with this asthmatic uh, disease. And, uh, and they were right. And today, in fact, that is what normally doctors would prescribe. Mm. But at the time, it was still uh, unsure, I guess. And doctors played safe. So every sport. Yeah. So I was, for me, it was therapy. It was my, uh, my way of coping with this, with this disease, um, which is incurable. But it also then became my passion. Mm. And I, I gravitated towards sports which were indoors, which were, which were less dusty and, and had less triggers uh, and, and swimming because it was cleaner. So basketball became my, uh, my passion. And I, it was my reason to get out of bed in the morning. You know, I would, I would train before you, school and, and, and Did you have school. any attacks though? Yes, always. But you carry your medication. And if I stayed at my grandparents, I, they had one, uh, a Ventolin or whatever Everywhere. it was. Yeah. My PE coach had one. I kept all, one always in my sports bag. So yeah, just in case. Well, because my brother had mild asthma and I've seen what happens to him. And you're saying you were like the absolute extreme. What was interesting and it served me still today is I learned how to breathe. Now that sounds flippant, but... No, tell me about that. Learning how to breathe really is about mindfulness. It, yep. You have an internal sense of where your system is, your, your parasympathetic and autoimmune system. And, and so therefore what happens is you sense something's wrong way before you start to get symptoms. What, is, what is that sense? It could be a sense of your chest tightening mm -hmm. or a, a mild discomfort. Sometimes it's difficult to describe, but you know something's not right. And that's where you need to sit down and do the deep breathing exercises and probably prevent the asthmatic attack. So you're very in tune with your body. Yes. Like to a whole different level than the normal normal person. Yes. And that's the unfortunate but lucky outcome from being well, a Well, it asthmatic. sounds like it's, it's one hell of an asset. It is. I mean, it's allowed me to do some amazing things, mm. um, pushing my body to the limits. Uh, some of the adventures that you mentioned earlier around endurance were testing the limits of human possibility. And, and, and that was, for me, the main reason for doing them. You know, how far can the human being go? When did you start doing the extreme stuff? I found that I had a knack for endurance when I played basketball because, you know, when everybody started to slow down and get tired, I was still sort of running up and down the court. But I didn't put much sense to it. I just mm. thought I was perhaps fitter than the rest because I trained harder. However, I, I did realize after I stopped basketball and started to do some uh, events for charity, like, you know, running the marathon for a charity or, mm. or doing a triathlon. You've raised a lot of money for charity. Yeah, so I, I, then I realized that actually um, I... I you know, I tend to get less tired. I, I'm not very fast, but I can keep going. Mm. And I, it was funny because I remember doing a triathlon where I came out of the water probably last, started to catch up a little bit on the bike. But then at the run towards the end of the race, um, I was I started to overtake people who, mm. were, who were slowing down because they were tired. And I went, I need a longer race, so I have more yeah. time to catch up. And yeah. that's, that's where it started. Then I did the Ironman and then I did many of those and I've done all sorts of crazy endurance challenges. Well, we were, we were debating it outside because I sort of like asking the random question. Is it mind... Over body or body over mind? Always mind is always mind's, mind's the limiting factor. But is it ever when the body's a limiting factor? 
the body can go much further than we think it can. So mm-hmm. if you think about the idea of your petrol gauge, mm-hmm. you know, when the light comes on, you know there's there's more to go. It's just we don't risk it. We don't want to explore it. So the, the body can go much further. Just give you an example. If we look physiologically at our systems, mm-hmm. yeah, we are able to run marathon distances every single day because our physiology was designed to do so. Because as hunter-gatherers, that's how we caught our dinner. Mm. Now, that was, what, 50,000 years ago. Our body hasn't, our physiology hasn't evolved much Mm. in 50,000 years. We've just lost the reason to do so. To do so. So we actually, if if you prepared yourself, you could run a marathon a day. You just have to have the right motivation rather than just call. It's amazing how fast you can can run if when you're being chased by something that wants to eat you, huh? (laughs) Back in the day. Yeah, yeah. and and it's not just us. So if we look back at, uh, you know, the the migration of of the wildebeest or or the animals we used to eat, they're moving 40, 50 kilometers a day to move to the next pasture. Uh, So the whole village would follow and mm. uh, you know so the hunters would run but the, the the grandmas and the children would walk and they'd cover those distances so do you think i said i said in this episode i'll be jumping around a lot because i've got so many questions for you you said that when you were playing basketball while everyone else was getting tired you found that you were able to keep going and keeping in mind the whole mind over matter do you think the reason that was was because of the fact that you had the asthma and you it made you be more resilient and want more I, I don't think so. I, no? I think there's a there's a physiological value in being asthmatic. So my heart is larger than average mm-hmm. just because it had to push oxygen and blood through smaller capillaries in my lungs, yep. which is one of the effects of asthma. So so my lungs and my heart function better, better. Um, okay. as a result. So I think that helps. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when you do something that you enjoy and you, you have a passion for, you don't give up. You keep pushing. It keep drives pushing. you more. Yeah, it drives you. Drives you a lot more. Did I read somewhere that you have a unusually high pain threshold or you don't feel pain? Yes. That's a strange thing. Yeah, please share. Um so pain is 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 a is a brain function. Yeah. Mm. So it's taking inputs from the rest of the body and it processes it. So pain is only in your mind, essentially. Um and it's there as a warning to tell you something's wrong. Mm. Now, it's a chemical process. So therefore, if that chem- those chemicals are imbalanced or, or don't necessarily work the same way, uh, you will feel pain differently. And we all feel pain differently to a certain extent. Mm. What I've found is that uh, my pain threshold sen- tends to be higher. And I'm not sure why. Um, I haven't really looked into the how detail. How do you figure it out? <laughs> what happened to you to make you realize something oh, I'll, like that? I, you know, I'll, I'll walk by and my wife will say, oh, your leg's bleeding. And I go, well, where, how did that happen? And I would have knocked it on the table and, and sort of opened a cut and I wouldn't feel. And obviously some of the endurance things I've done when the pain threshold kicks in, I can bear it more. It's not because I'm brave or or anything like that. It's just that my sense of pain tends to be that num- numbed. Mm. And so therefore I can go a bit further. It's a good thing to have, especially. Mm, not necessarily, because again, if you pain is a warning system. And, True. If, and if it's not working properly, it can cause yourself damage. 27 marathons. 27 days, 27 countries. That's right. Back to back. Back to back. If that isn't pain, I don't know what is. (laughs) How? First of all, what made you decide to do that? How did you do it? And what did you learn in the process? So the first question is is twofold. So the purpose of the event um, started from, let's say, an an altruistic approach to raising money for charities. Mm -hmm. We wanted to inspire the whole of the EU because it was the European year of volunteering, hence 27 countries, 27 Mm -hmm. states, to do something physical to help raise money for charity. 
And we set up this campaign where I would run a marathon in each of the countries of the EU, primarily in the main cities, running the, along their official marathon route. And I invited people to come along and run with me, parts or as long as they wanted to, as long as they donated to a children's charity. Yeah. And so that was the main reason. The second was, and probably arguably also the first, is could, could it be done? So something like this had ne never been done before. There were people that had run multiple back-to-back -back marathons day after day after day, but typically in the same place mm. out of their, you know, with, with adequate rest. So the main concern for us was A, transportation. Could I get from one country to the other quick enough to be within the 24-hour window of the daily marathon? And how would we manage to do that in a cost-effective way? Because we wanted all the money to go to charity. Mm. We had a sponsor that covered the travel costs. That was helpful. And... Yeah, would I manage to rest? do? Yeah, so and, and obviously unlimited rest because we <laughs> we actually used a camper van to go from one country to the other on mainland. So I was trying to sleep while the guys were driving, uh, which wasn't very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you train for it? How did you get ready for it? I was always active in the sense that I was always doing something sp sports-wise. So it just. I just needed to increase the amount of running I was doing. And what I did was block training. So in order to get used to running on tired legs, I'd, I'd run, say, a half marathon Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But most of my time was spent fundraising, so I didn't really get enough training in. So I, I actually joked that the first seven days, the first seven marathons were the training, because yeah. actually those were the most painful. It started to get easier after that. And I think the last 10, I probably ran, you know, 330 marathons uncomfortably because my body had adapted to that amount of It was of, sort of in autopilot by the sounds of it-ish. Yeah, it was probably going back to this whole default, you know, ancestor ability to run, I think. So when you were running, what thoughts came into your mind? Well, some, first, so first tell me some of the lost. good and some of the bad. <laughs> not getting lost is one of them. Um, we, we did them on open roads, so not like a typical marathon where the roads are closed. Mm. So I had to have my wits about me to make sure I didn't get run over. And also following the route. I had a friend of mine who was on a bicycle with the uh, official route map on, mm -hmm. on, a, on a Garmin. So we were, we were following that to make sure. And it was also making sure that I was having co good conversations with the people who came out to meet me and run with me. So that was always helpful. Uh -huh. But those, those people would typically do 5, 10K and then the rest would be, would be on my own. I don't know. I thought different things. I'm, I, I, I have, have a good imagination, so. But did you have any dark moments? Yes, of course. What were they like? I think halfway I was missing my wife and kids. Um, there was a marathon, I think Rotterdam, where I had an injury. I tore a muscle in my leg and I thought that was it. I taped it up, uh, ran through it. Two marathons later, it started to heal and, and by the end of it, it was back to normal. So that was a dark moment because I, I was worried we wouldn't do it, wouldn't finish it. On the penultimate marathon, there was an airline, an airport strike in Greece and I had yet to do Cyprus. So I was up till about three in the morning until they stopped the strike, got a flight, landed at 6 a.m., started the marathon at seven. Uh, it was the last one. So I said, that's fine. <laughs> I'll rest after. Um, but I did that one on no sleep. But it was touch and go that I would manage to get to the country within that day. Yeah. What was the, what was the first thing you did when you finished? There was a lot of press and um, interviews and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, but it was just, yeah, went, went for a, a, a nice meal and a beer with the friends that mm. came with me and, and, and were part of this journey um, and celebrated. Gosh, I would have just 
So you think you'd just be like, I'll see you guys in about a week. I'm going to be sleeping, not moving. Because it really, it takes quite a, marathons take a toll. One marathon takes a toll on the body, let alone 27 of them. What happened to you physically? Like you get quite dehydrated, right? No, we had the, we had the uh, nutrition and hydration organized to a T. We had the right supplementation. I was burning a lot of calories, mm. so I needed to make sure I was replenishing that. And you don't always find good food on the road, so we, we you know, we we brought stuff with us. Um, so I, no, I was I was fine from a nutritional perspective. Obviously, rest was was a bit limited, but mm. again, you get used to sleeping rough. And I lost some weight, but that's inevitable, I guess. But otherwise, no, no adverse effects. Gosh, not bad at all. I think I'd get some adverse effects. Wore a few ra- running shoes out, but that was about Quite it. A, how, how many actually? Uh, how, three three, three pairs. pairs. Yeah. Wow. Wow. You, but you helped a lot of people. You guys raised quite a bit for that, didn't you? We raised uh, 100,000 euros um, for, for the various charities. And I think the legacy of um, doing endurance for good causes is something that Malta sort of, I would say, started um, or became more popular, let's say, with, mm. with this event. Well, that's brilliant. That's one hell of an achievement. Have you always wanted to help people? It seems everything I've read about you, in some way or another, you've been of service. Yes, I think I benefited because I was a, a poorly child, I guess. I benefited from people around me that really helped me get over it and, mm. and, and participated in, in active, you know, life. And, and, and my parents were always supportive and my brothers and, and our circle of friends. So I think it's, it's part of our culture. And I think Maltese people tend to be friendly. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Very much. So, you know, this helpfulness is perhaps something that's in our DNA as well. So that leads me to uh, who you are today, the man that you are today. Tell me about all of it. Well, I think, you know, as a person, my, my inspiration is helping people unlock potential. Mm. And I think this journey of self-discovery showed me that we have so much more to give that we perhaps through imposter syndrome or lack of confidence don't use whether it's physical, whether it's intellectual, whether it's emotional or whether it's skills, we have potential that would be of service to our communities, to our businesses, to each other. And it's, it's, it just sits there. Mm. So in a way, for me, leadership is an opportunity to bring the best out of people. And it's trying to figure out what that is and helping them realize what it is and then giving them the right tools and skills to, to be able to achieve it. But so, because you were saying to me how you've gone through every five years, you end up in getting an itch that you need to scratch. So did you start as a physiotherapist? Yes. Uh, so the story, my father owned... Ha- to get, but what, I'm, what I'm getting at is how did you start there and end up at creating Vistage? And then I want to hear all about that as well. Sure. Um, it's, it's difficult. You know, Steve Jobs says you can only tell strategy backwards. You can join the dots backwards. So it's well, difficult. Go backwards you know, then. So it's difficult to do. And, and, you know, life can only be understood backwards. backwards. Yeah, it has to be lived forward. Hindsight. So, yeah. <laughs> Kierkegaard's uh, stuff. But, I, you know, I don't know. I, th- I think it's always been trying to do something I enjoy. Mm. Uh, I was into sports. So getting a job in sports, you know, physiotherapy is a, is a sports-oriented type of profession, if you want to do that, was one plus one equals three. Mm. Could I earn money while doing something I'd do for free and, and be in the space that I want to be in and I enjoy? So my decisions were always driven by that sort of purpose of meaningful reasons why to get out of bed in the morning. When I started to experience leading others as I grew the business and, and I was always entrepreneurial, so I, I didn't sort of sit in a clinic and just do physiotherapy. Mm. I, I ran the clinics, I grew them, I, I 
built more. Um, we we extended into hotels and health spas. So I was always keen to sort of create. And then I started this leadership journey by starting to manage other people and try and sort of motivate other people. And I enjoyed that. And I wanted to learn more about it. And I, I studied um, business studies just to sort of understand a little bit more how to be effective as a business person. Mm. And and it's most often the case an opportunity comes and I say yes and then figure it out later. <laughs> but with with what you're doing, you you do focus on CEOs. Yes. So Vistage is a 65 year old company. I didn't start it. Oh, um, okay. It's it's a company that started in the US and its goal was to bring business leaders together to brainstorm and help each other out, as opposed to hold your secrets to your chest. Well, I was going to say, which is quite a different way. It's it's quite disruptive, especially for 65 years ago, when especially everything was held. I think we do that more of that today, to be fair. I think, you know, before to survive or build an economy, you needed to to share and you needed to be open and you needed to collaborate. So I think what's happened is that this business model of meeting monthly with your peers uh, has stayed the same. That's still Mm -hmm. what we do today. The idea of bringing experts in to to guide us and show us new ways is still there today. The extension through technology that is more recent is the ability to connect with now 45,000 CEOs and business owners around the world in your industry or not to explore everything from macro economies to, you know, where you like to play golf. And it's this connectivity that actually makes the Vistage community so powerful, such, such that Vistage members will will outpace their competition and their industry at least two and a half times. So the power of peers is demonstrated in, in the data that we collect. That's quite incredible. So you, do, you, th- you feel that there's less collaboration today than there was in the past? Yeah, I think sometimes it's on purpose in the sense we're a bit selfish. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing, which is probably more the case, is we're too busy. Okay. So we just focus on what we've got to do. Mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily stop and, you know, see what's around us and how we might learn from others and how we might be inspired by what other people are doing. Mm. You know, the only reason we tend to share is if there's an intention to do business or partnerships or acquire or sell, which is a bit cynical, unfortunately. But fair. Not that it's a fair comment. You did say one thing, though, that I wanted to make sure we touch on. A CEO's life is very lonely. Yeah. So throughout my life, I always found that Ideas bounce around in my head and I'm mm. not sure whether they're the right thing. There's also the complexity of running an organization or leading a team where you have the responsibility of livelihoods mm-hmm. and that weighs down on you. Mm-hmm. Decisions you take can have a significant impact on many people. So how do you live with that? And it can get overwhelming if it just sits in your head. So you want to be able to have conversations around it. Now, the problem is that there's certain things you can't tell your team. There's certain things you can't tell your shareholders. Mm. There's certain things you can't discuss with your peers. And there's certain things you don't want to take home and offload onto your better half. So where do you go? And because people don't necessarily have that outlet, they burn out because they're carrying this pressure and, and not having a place to let off steam, except maybe go boxing or, or to the gym. So the idea of a peer group, a trusted, high-performing group of people that are all CEOs, all probably going through similar mm. things that you're going through, you know, take COVID as the pandemic as an example, we all have similar problems. And so the problem shared is a problem halved. It's, it's easier to be able to be in a room with 12 people who understand you because they're going through the same pains. Mm. And that insights from 12 brains is definitely going to make the problem less daunting and easier to solve. And the trust amongst the peer group is obviously incredible because that's the, the, there's a lot of sensitivities there. 
so each group is is chaired mm-hmm. by a very competent ex-business person who's left the rat race and decided he wants to give back or she wants to give back. They're trained up to our Vistage standard and they follow Chair Academy. Mm-hmm. And their job is to make sure trust is in the group. And that's that's all they're there for. They're there to, to facilitate the conversation, to make sure everybody feels that they can be, they can have a voice, and that, that no issue is, is ignored or, or buried. And so the chair has to make sure that he's or she's choosing the right people to be in that group, mm-hmm. that they come together and they and they share and they're open and they're vulnerable. And those people that are not vulnerable or not open to to be vulnerable have to leave. Mm. And that's the only way you can keep a, a high trust group of people. Because you know? everyone's being vulnerable. Yep. Everyone's got something to lose in a way. Yeah. By not. Okay. It's tough. It's tough for CEOs. You know, we, we live Very much. We live in a, an ego driven society. So, you know, showing your weaknesses is not easy. Well the, everyone looks up to them to be the strong one. Mm. Everyone looks up to them to be the leader. So to be programmed that way and then one day go, okay, you don't have to do that, let it all out. It, it, takes, a, it takes a bit of work. It does. And that's, that's where the coach comes in to build that confidence mm. in the individual. But it's cathartic. You know, once mm. you do it, you realize how much lighter mm. you feel. And that clears the fog and makes you a better decision maker. 100%. 100%. So do you, are you yourself uh, part of the business coaching circle or are so you now I, a step back? I, I still run six groups. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a busy time and each group is, uh, you know, is, is a high functioning group of people. So you need to be sharp and you need to be on your toes. I, I love it. I, I love mm. chairing, chairing. So that's six days out a month just to chair. I obviously run the business, but I have a good team that, that do run the business, to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, my job really is to inspire more people to become coaches. And for CEOs to reach out and join a Vistage group close to where they live, whether it's Malta or UAE here or other you know places around the world, we're in 35 countries, so there's always somewhere that you can mm-hmm. go to. So that's really what I what I focus my time on, giving my time to my individual members, as well as h- helping other chairs grow. Yeah, and then obviously the strategy for the business growth. What's what's the biggest limiting belief that you keep hearing amongst the CEOs? I don't have enough resources or time. Interesting. And you're, and what, co- what comes out of that? How, how do you shift from that? Well, essentially the simplistic truth is that they lack an understanding of what priority is. Mm-hmm. So whether you're a, a billionaire or whether you're, you know, at the lower end of the, the, you know, the work scale, you have 24 hours in a day and mm. it's what you do with it that makes a difference. Mm. And it's about return on time, you know, not return on money or investment nowadays. That's what's finite. Time. It's always been finite. Have you ever in in these scenarios where, because, you know, coming face to face with a limiting belief or, you know, coming face to face and sort of asking powerful questions, especially to a CEO, as you said, you're dealing with egos. Have you had this sort of, or how has it been accepted? For me, it starts with a growth mindset. Mm. Can you get a growth mindset if you're sort of halfway through your career or towards the tail end of it? I, I think it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. So we tend to attract people who already have a growth mindset, who are keen to learn and know they don't have all the answers. Mm. And that's a really, a much easier conversation because when someone has an open mind, you, you can move within it to, to explore, to create, mm. to find other ways and, and to inspire and to, to awaken, you know, th- that potential. Mm. So I'm lucky and blessed to have you know, the right people. But yes, you encounter people who are, who are maybe complainers or people who sort of blame it on everything else. Uh, and those, those can be a struggle, yes. can imagine. So what makes a great leader? I think... Um, and I'm going to split that into two. What mm-hmm. makes a great leader in business and what makes a great leader in life? They can't be split. Mm. 
you you cannot be a good leader because a good leader is a human being and there's no way that you're going to have someone who's a, a caring leader with their team and then not at home or the other way around so what defines a good leader is probably a multitude of things mm-hmm. but if i had to put my finger on one it's the ability to inspire people to get out of their comfort zone now whether they do that by inspiring trust and a safety net or they do that in a different way by motivating the inspiration to to take risks uh that's then style but leadership is about moving people and if you don't move people then you're not leading you're not leading what is uh going to sort of let me think give me an example of what you've seen as being very poor leadership the two extremes of telling people what to do mm-hmm. or stepping back and not getting involved because nothing's broken so the last affair well, like approach yeah last affair approach everything's fine i don't need to meddle i can just sit and watch that's not leadership that's non leadership and it's poor but it looks less damaging mm. the other side is obviously the person that you know goes around and throws things at people and and, and yells and wants their way um because that's just using your power and this, but what's uh, but what's behind that what's behind a leader that behaves that way i think everyone's different and there are different causes to mm-hmm. that clearly there's a frustration that they're not getting their way and you need to figure out what that is whether they've set the bar wrong mm. or they've misunderstood their role or the people around them I mean, frustration can be explained if you don't have a team that's functioning well whether you're the person that caused that disruption or not is mm-hmm. separate sometimes you can walk into an organization as a ceo as a paid person and find a mess but uh, you know getting your frustrations out on those people is not going to help solve the problem so i think you know most of the time it's actually insecurity when people are aggressive they're manifesting uh, a lack of something inside of them mm. Well, I've had one of those in the past. I think we've all well, I think we've all in our in our uh, careers have ended up sitting across from a leader or a person in a high position that has brought their insecurities to the table. It becomes toxic to the whole company. Yes, and I think this is where I'm I I believe everybody unless you're a sociopath, everybody mm. is re- redeemable, you know. Mm. It, but sometimes when you're in the you, when you can't see the wood for trees, which you're stuck in the in the weeds and you can't find a way out, it can get frustrating. So, so the problem just festers, mm. and that's why CEOs need to get out of their business and run their business from a distance. Sometimes, mm. you know, our our meetings, we're we're at work. We're just running our business from outside of it rather than from within it. Mm. Sometimes you uh, need to take a step back. Yeah, it gives you perspective. Mm. Nature versus nurture, CEO, leader, both. Again, mm-hmm. there are elements proven to be related to your genetic makeup society also determines leadership through visual cues so if you're taller or more beautiful or more handsome you may get more attraction and that helps you in your leadership journey whether that's right or wrong is is another story uh but then there's a lot that you can learn about being a good leader what's important is that it matches your personality so mm-hmm. nurture and nature cannot be in conflict mm-hmm. i have very very good leaders who are introverts they are extremely good leaders but they the minute they try and be extroverts and try and do what they an extrovert apart. leader does it doesn't work it comes across as fake so you need to be true to yourself mm. and this is this whole thing around authentic leadership mm. be yourself sharpen your skills don't worry too much about your weaknesses get someone else to do that stuff and really find ways to be authentic and 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 transparent and open because that shows that you are okay to be vulnerable and not have all the answers which actually usually inspires your people to step up well, that that shows greater strength yes but it, it it i think it's endearing mm, mm. you know if you have a if you have someone perfect in front of you all the time it becomes a bit daunting 
Whereas if you see that that person is human and makes mistakes, you want to step up and, mm. and pitch in and help out. Well, it also gives you something to aspire to. Yes, I think the role model element is important. Mm. But you said genetic comes into it to, to make a good leader. Yes, I think there are elements that um, we recognize. I mean, if you go back and um, you know, look at anthropology and you look at you know Greek leaders of the past, most often they were the strongest person in the tribe or, mm-hmm. or the person that had perhaps more intellect, which, which is also proven to be mm-hmm. partly genetic. So these are attributes that some may have through luck, I guess. Some waste them and yeah. some put them to good use. Now, before I go into shooting off I, my last, like, just question after question, tell me about this book, A Million Steps. Amongst everything else you did, you had time to write a book. Well, uh, Glenn helped me very much with that. But uh, the, the Million Steps is the amount of steps I estimated it took to run 27 marathons in 27 days in 27 countries. And essentially... I came up with the name because life isn't a sprint. So how can we recognize that from a distance, one step wrong that we may beat ourselves up about is actually a very, very small step con- mm. considering the amount of steps we're going to take in our mm. life. And, and the book's full of stories of experiences I've had, including mishaps, which I've learned from. And I just wanted to collect those thoughts in, into a book. And hopefully people that read it will be inspired to to go and explore their comfort zone and see where that line lies and hopefully be less worried about mistakes they've made and move on and take regrets as a tool for self-improvement. And also there's some life hacks in there as well on how to become more efficient and effective, which gives you the free time uh, to be able to do more with your time. Who's the person you'd love to pick up this book? Tell me the, the type of person or where they are in life. Probably someone who is finding themselves a little bit overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Or someone who believes that they have potential that's untapped, but they just don't know how to tap into it. You know, I met someone yesterday, they said, I I know I can give more, I know I can do more, but I'm not sure how. We all have those periods of time. And I think, you know, most people that are lucky to find someone that they can bounce that idea off, that can help them, will will go places. But if you don't have someone like that around, maybe a a good read might help. So a mentor in a book? Yeah, hopefully. I'm going to have to read that. I'll put that aside. Thank you. What are you most proud of? My kids. Tell me about your kids. Two, two kids, I believe. Yes, two girls. One is 18, studying law, and the other one is 16 in college. Mm-hmm. Both good students, both value-driven. And in the tough times that they have to grow up in today with the pressure of social media, they've had their struggles, but they've been brave and courageous. Um, they've stuck to being kind um, and being good people. And I think that this is something that I'm very, very proud of. Sounds wonderful. If I ask them, what's, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your dad? Would they both have the same answer? And what would it be? Hmm. You would really have to ask them, I guess. Mm. I think persistence is, is one thing that would probably come out, but also it's reflection. It's, it don't rush it. It's sit back, think about it and figure out the next steps. That split second. Yeah can make all the difference. Mm-hmm. So what drives you? Curiosity mainly. Mm-hmm. I want to know stuff and I want to experience stuff. Um, yeah, I, it's, it is a driver for me. I mean, you know, why I'm here, why UAE, don't know. Well, Just, that, that you know. was one of my, that's actually one of my <laughs> next questions. How did you end up in the UAE? Why UAE? Malta I, to UAE. I looked at a map. <laughs> And I said, where, where, is Vis- where is Vistage not? <laughs> and there's one, fi- one plane f- flight away. Mm-hmm. And yeah, 
Because you guys are in 20 countries, right? Uh, or is it gone 35 up? now, 35. through an acquisition, yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah, so, and, and can it be done with absolutely no network, no connections? I don't know anyone. I've never been here. Can I grow a business in a place like that? So it's curiosity. Curiosity, challenge, hmm. push yourself further. Yes, I, I don't see it as pushing myself from the sort of self-flagellation approach. No, I no. mean, I don't believe that that oh, makes no, sense. Oh, no, it's like, keep <laughs> it going, yeah, keep, keep it yourself going. fresh. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's, you know... Like you said, have something to always have something interesting to wake up to, something yes. to inspire you. I get bored very quickly. Mm. Did not pick that up <laughs> at all, at all. Um, what's your ultimate dream? I think for society to be more compassionate, mm. which then in turn will help our environment. It will help the way we do business. It will help our economy. It will help communities. And I really think that it's up to the leaders of today in the business space to do that. We can't rely on politicians and governments. Um, well, we can, but not globally. So there are places where it works. Here is probably one good example where mm. it does work, but most places where it's democratic do doesn't. Mm. And I, again, I'm, I'm no sort of politician, but I think business has the opportunity to actually step up and focus on ESG and focus on community and focus on well-being, um, not just of their employees or their customers, but also of the communities where they are making their money. So it's altruistic. I think it can be achieved. But the leaders of today need to put general well-being interests before their own or their shareholders. Mm. You do, like you do see quite a bit of it being done. I've seen lots of companies that have better CSR programs or they've got campaigns where it's looking, you know, at the person or being more inclusive and all that. But I always question how much of it is strategic and how much of it is authentic. Well, arguably, philosophically, you could say it doesn't matter mm -hmm. because the outcome is the Fair. same. I think if it's altruistic, it's self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. If it's strategic and it actually makes value for the shareholders or for the investors, it's more sustainable. Mm -hmm. So I would say, not necessarily means to an end, I wouldn't agree with greenwashing, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but as long as you're getting the results, I think it's fine. Listen, you can give to charity because you feel good and there's no harm in that. Mm -hmm. And you can give to charity because you want to make a difference. The result is that charity the gets the money and they can do good with it. And that's ultimately the goal, isn't it? That's, fair, that's actually quite a fair way of looking at it. All right, what would you like to be remembered for? Um... I think it goes back to the, the, the earlier point around getting people, inspiring people to stretch themselves. I like that. That's an elevator pitch in itself. <laughs> I think that's the best elevator pitch I've heard. So clear to the point, it's succinct. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, what would be a piece of advice that you would give our listeners out there? Take time to reflect where you're at. Mm -hmm. Think about the things you'd love to do. Mm -hmm and achieve, try and figure out a way to do that. So essentially lead with the heart, but then figure out the how with the mind. Mm. You know, you can't just, the positive thinking on its own doesn't work. You need to, you need to have a tactic, you mm. need to have a strategy. But that needs time, you need to sit and reflect. So take time out, calm down, take a deep breath and sit with yourself and say, okay, this is what I'd like to achieve. What tools do I need? What do I need to learn? Who do I need to know? Mm. And try and map out a path. And but one, then you have to execute. One percent every day, right? Yeah. It's a lot. A little bit, well, to make a change, one percent, four percent. Well, you, you, you hear all those people and one, one of the biggest things I've seen in pe like on people that wanting to step out, do their own thing, is that they want to go from zero to hero. Mm. And then that just disables them. 
And you, you see so many people that have so much potential and they could have gone so far and they haven't moved a step because they expected it to be perfection the very next day. Yes, absolutely. You know what I find as well? We have a, a campaign or a, a mission that is, you know, the CEO's life of climb. You're mm. constantly moving upwards, you know, and it's never a straight line. Mm-mm. And so again, it doesn't matter if you have to take a sidestep. It doesn't matter if the next job is not going to pay you more, but might be more interesting or might be one step closer to where you want to get to. That's fine. Mm. So reflect, take a breath. It's not going to be a straight journey. 4% a day. What else? I think be true, mm. be honest. Honest about where you need help and ask and for and it. And ask for it. Honest about who you need to be on your side mm. with those people. Accepting the fact that things might not go your way at first and fail forwards fast. Yeah, I think those are all ingredients. Fail of, uh, forward fast. Yeah. I really like that. Can you uh, go deeper into that? So often we make a mistake and we dwell on it. We mm-hmm. recriminate or worse, we say, oh, I'm never going to do that again. So that blocks the learning from failure. So fail forward. So what did I learn from this mistake or this, this situation? But do it quickly. Move on. Mm. You know, don't dwell on it. I like that one. What is it? Don't, don't cry over spilled milk kind of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm getting the look really badly from the corner. So I'm going to ask the final, final question. What's next for you? I think it's, it's the journey that's, I, I don't, I'm not a goal driven person, mm-hmm. as strange as that sounds. Um, for me, it's about the journey. I'm enjoying the journey. So I'm going to, I'm going to stay with it mm-hmm. and I'll keep exploring and see where the next one veers off to. We'll keep on uh, following you on your journey then. Thank you so much for coming into the studio today. Thank you very much. Very enlightening. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Rooted Within. If you like this episode, please make sure you drop a follow so you never miss an episode in the future. Rooted Within with Lillian Dan.